Hey everyone, welcome to Wire Talks, the Wire podcast where we discuss all things crypto. So whether you're a veteran or a crypto noob, we're all learning together. This is your host, Thomas Scaria. I have a very unique uh, pair uh, here in the recording studio today. We have the founder of Hashflow, Varun Verdula. Welcome to the show, Varun. Thank you very much. We also have uh, one of the advisors to Hashflow, also the head of operations and gen counsel at the moment. He's also the head of operations at TokenSoft. We have Lawson Baker. Lawson, welcome to the show. Hey, hey. Excited to be here. Cool. Uh, any disclosures you want to make right away, Lawson? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, all these opinions are, are mine and not TokenSoft's and uh, you need to get your own attorney or in, uh, financial advisor for that type of advice. I'm not giving out legal advice. So, wait. You're not my attorney. I am not your attorney. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, my tweets, I think it says something like tweets, not financial advice. You got to pay for that. Okay. Okay. Uh, we certainly know we got to pay for it. Uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, let's let's get started. Uh, I'm ex- really excited to cover you guys. This came across my desk, I think, about a month and a half ago through James Treacher. I, I believe he does your growth marketing and things like that. Uh, um, so, uh, he, he brought it to my attention. I got connected to you guys through Mike as well. I've been following the project since. Hashflow is really exciting, right? It's designed to solve a lot of different problems in the space. Lack of liquidity with DEXs, second layer scaling of Bitcoin, Ethereum, atomic swaps to some extent, and of course, like the defying of Bitcoin, right? Having Bitcoin on Ethereum enables you to program Bitcoin a little bit more. Removal of counterparty risk from centralized exchanges. So, a lot of different characteristics that I find really interesting and uh, we're going to get into today. And I'm sure you guys are going to correct me uh, or, or expound quite a bit on what I just said. Uh, but let's start off with uh, just con- contextualizing your respective backgrounds. Uh, Varun, we'll start with you. What did you do before and how did that lend itself to uh, Hashflow? So, I grew up wanting to be an astronaut. So, so that's been my... So, so, that's how I grew up. Exactly. Same. So, so, wow. so, I was six years old, I saw... Uh, uh, Neil Armstrong's video, then I saw Tom Hanks' movie, Apollo 13, and I was like, all right, I want to be an astronaut. Yeah, so I went to school to study aeroastro, so aerospace engineering and physics. And uh, after that, I ended up working for uh, German Aerospace Center, which is a subsidiary of ESA, or European Space Agency, for about a year. So I was mostly doing uh, space systems or satellites. And a year later, I moved to Bay Area, wanting to pursue my PhD at Stanford in Aerastro again, but then ended up not doing that, but instead joining a company and uh, working more in the space industry, and then later on working on drone technology at Udacity. And uh, that's when I met a friend of mine called, I think you might know him, Rick Burton. Mm-hmm. So, so we ended up running into each other in a hot tub. And uh, that's when uh, he he told me about uh, crypto and this thing called Ethereum and Bitcoin. And he was like, yeah, I think you might be somebody who would be interested in protocol engineering and systems design, especially since that's something you do and that's something you can actually apply here. And I got my hands on Nick Zabo's blog on on Enumerated and Andres Antonopoulos. What what year Uh, was this, by the way? This was 2017. Okay. So, So, end of 2016, early 2017, that's when... So, so I, st- I was following crypto news, but then after getting into the rabbit hole of the origin of money and then seeing this as another whole system design problem, I think that's what kind of got me into crypto. And then I went from being an aerostro or a space nerd to an economics nerd and also got into crypto and then I never looked back ever again. Yeah, hopefully uh, both professions take you to the moon, right? Yes, literally and figuratively. <laughs> and uh, one thing uh, they don't tell you when you try to be an astronaut is I had the same kind of dream when I was growing up. 
I really respected Neil Armstrong and, you know, really wanted to go down that route. My dad actually used to work at the Indian Space Research Organization as uh, one of the research scientists there. That was his first gig out of college. So, wanted to follow in his footsteps. But what they, what they don't tell you, it's not just about being good at physics and having good intelligence, but you also need a lot of phys- physicality, right? Absolutely. Uh, and I, I was just a total runt. Like, I, I think I was still 4'11 or something by the time I was 17. So, it was just not going to work out. And you also need to be a doctor effectively, right? Because you're going to space and you need to know know, biological systems, your own uh, inside and out and, you know, assisting others out there too. So it's, it's a really uh, tough profession to get into. I know. Absolutely. Basically have to be Superman. You could, you could be like a pilot who's, who's the flight commander, or, or you could also be a mission specialist who's going there. Being a mission specialist is more picky because depending on the mission, you may or may not get selected, even though you technically work as an astronaut, or you could be in the Navy or US Air Force and then just fly. Yeah, seems like a cop out, right? (laughs) Uh, Okay, Lawson, let's uh, let's move on to you. Tell me a little bit about yourself and your background and how that sort of led to you getting more involved in Hashflow. Sure. So I did not directly want to be an astronaut, but my my girlfriend did. I actually just gave her the nickname Moonshot because she keeps working on moonshot ideas. And uh, yeah, so I fell in through crypto, maybe through the back door. I, uh, from a very young age, was obsessed with the stock market and and started, you know, um, following that when I was, you know, 13, 14. Um, started off with Money Magazine and eventually Investor Business Daily and then decided in college I wanted to go to law school as the backdoor route into investment banking instead of like the master's in finance. Ended up graduating at the second worst year to do that. That was 2010. Uh, 2009 was the actual worst year. But got lucky, applied to the investment bank and they stuck me at a law firm for a little while. And then 10 months later, I went over to the investment bank and was originating fixed income bonds and leases for about four or five years recognized that I was renting my time um, rather than investing it and decided I wanted to join a startup. And so I joined a startup um, out of Memphis, which is where I was from, called Synapse Pay, which is now Synapse FI. And we moved out to San Francisco in 2015. And our very first customers um, were cryptocurrency exchanges. And uh, what we were providing to them was a banking API. At the very beginning, that was an ACH and uh, KYC and Know Your Customer and Any Money Laundering API. And uh, what that kind of turned into is one foot in fintech and one foot into crypto. My very first customer that I got at uh, Synapse actually was uh, Wire before they changed their name. That's right. Uh, You were your first customer. Yeah. Technically, our first customer was Buttercoin, which exchange they went out of business as we were driving to San Francisco, which is another hilarious story. But uh, I, I cold emailed Michael with a 25 cent API. <laughs> so he sends me that screenshot every once in a while. It's kind of a funny story. But the long and short of it is at Synapse, uh, they grew into you know more fintech customers and more banking type customers. But crypto was our core at the beginning. And at the Fiat Connection, you see a lot of kind of the underbelly of crypto um, and what works about the current system and what doesn't. Um, and what it kind of came down to me is banking API is definitely where the future for finance as we know it today. But it felt like this bridge to something else. And the, and the bridge to something else would most definitely was crypto. And so I left uh, there in spring of 18 after kind of advising and helping various crypto products to go full-time or try to find full-time work into crypto and joined Tokensoft in the fall or late summer of 18. My interest in, in Hashflow kind of peaked. Uh, James RT on Twitter actually reached out to me, same person who you had to get introduced to. 
there's a few of us that have been in this uh, on-chain cash flow rabbit hole for probably call it one, two years now. Patrick Kershaw, um, James RT, um, Rick Burton. Um, there's a few of us that if one of us sees the, a, a ha- an on-chain cash flow type project that looks interesting, um, we'd reach out to each other. And so James reached out to me, uh, mentioned the project. And uh, it was super exciting. At first look, it was incredibly complex and uh, I needed more too long didn't reads of, of what it was. Um, and so I kind of, uh, Varun and I chatted and, and I kind of wrapped my head around it. And, it. and to me, it felt like the next iteration on a lot of ideas all mashed together at once. And so that was really exciting. And so just unofficially helping them out on the side is essentially what I'm doing now. Yeah, absolutely. A great origin story. I love it. Let's get into hash flow. Before we actually get into the underlying protocol and do a tech deep dive and things like that, let's talk about the industry at large. Uh, what are the core problems that Hashflow is trying to solve? And what is the backdrop that Hashflow is coming to market in? Oh, good question. So the top problems here is scalability, achieving interoperability between ETH and BTC, and then uh, bringing liquidity. That is a big issue in, in DEX space while also solving for the custodial problem associated with the checks so so a good way to put it is uh, we're trying to bind eth and uh, btc while achieving scaling and addressing the inherent issues in the current scaling designs uh, related to collateralization which which removes sort of the incentive to start the hubs or exchanges in the first place and uh, second uh, as Lawson mentioned like essentially integrating different ideas to essentially design a game that is based on the current traditional finance market structure to incentivize various players such as liquidity providers, exchanges and wallets so that they're all equally incentivized to participate. So so that's essentially the essence of what we're trying to build. A game where different players in the in the in the fintech or trading are equally incentivized to participate and removes the issues associated with collateral and uh, creates this trust-minimized, uh, multi-centric distributed trade network. Mm-hmm. I definitely like that you're thinking about the traditional market structure and how you can design something that accommodates that. That's what drew me most closely to the to the project. And we'll definitely get into why collateralization and removing that is is, is all beneficial to the system. Let's talk more a little bit about the like how you thought of the idea and any other design patterns that you were taking into consideration against the backdrop of looking at this traditional market structure and how you can solve some problems there. Were there just designs in the space already that you were inspired by? So just to clarify, are you asking me about the financial market structure or or, or the, the problems inherent in the crypto? Or, yeah, or, I would or say a, both? A previous work in crypto that lent itself to Hashflow. Got it. So uh, I think some of the protocol designs I was actually looking into was the Lightning Network and then Plasma and uh, also the non-atomic swaps by Summa One. Okay. So uh, these are the three uh, main inspirations uh, that I was looking into before designing it. So with Lightning, I think the implementation was good and very promising, but the issue I was seeing was, again, how to do with collateralization where uh, or the idea of each channel must be pre-funded before a two players can interact with each other. So it works, but then again, for a very limited set of audience. So if you want to scale it to uh, a massive groups, and then it turns from a mesh network to more of a multi-centric hub spoke model, 
But then even then, the super nodes that are required to route payments, the incentive for them to operate as hubs diminishes as more and more users join and they have to collateralize each channel for every new user that joins the network. So that I saw as the, as the most determined factor that I thought could have been the re- reason to uh, prevent the mass adoption of Lightning. And then uh, with Plasma, I think it was, it was a pretty well-written paper and there's several flavors of Plasma. So I essentially took the concept of periodic rebalancing on-chain and moving all the transactions off-chain. But then instead of using sidechains to do computation or for storing data, uh, we decided to just go with the traditional centralized databases. The reason being, if you're saying sidechains are going to be operated by a uh, limited number of players who have vested interest in maintaining the sidechain in the first place, and there's not much incentive for anyone else to mine on the sidechains, then my question was, why even build sidechains? Yeah. So if it's already incentivizing centralization, which is not a bad thing, because in order to scale, you need that freedom of choice to do certain updates and uh, being able to have the freedom to do so. And sidechains just complicates the design further. Yeah, yeah. So so as a result, why not just use something that's already been tested and people already use that. So if you look at Chexis, the centralized exchange of Binance or Coinbase, they've already solved the scaling problem. So the problem that we're really facing currently is transparency of the reserves and custody, of course, that uh, storing user private keys, it creates a big honeypot. So how do we fix that? So if you're able to fix that problem, then I think we're already close to achieving scalability. So that was the mm-hmm. whole idea. And then the last part was, of course, uh, achieving the the binding of the two because BTC happens to be 70% of the volume. Yeah, yeah. And uh, not addressing that basically means you're killing 70% of the market or you're not even talking about that, ignoring that market completely. So, so how do we bring BTC to ETH? And that's where I think uh, the non-atomic swaps uh, came into play. And then basically what I did was integrated all three into one. Like meta model. Meta, yes. Yeah. And, and to kind of expand on that, I think cash flow is part of two really important narratives as crypto evolves. You know, I think based on the tech at the very beginning, what happened in the crypto space is we really just recreated a lot of systems that already existed. The underlying technology, Bitcoin and blockchains was new, but how we interacted with them, we kind of just repeated a lot of the things we already had. So centralized exchanges, uh, for example, is, is you know, the first thing that we, we all created and interacted with. And what we saw is with the Mt. Goxes of the world and the various other exchanges, almost every exchange, with the exception of a few highlights, have had some sort of hack or loss of user funds. And in some cases, they've gone defunct. And in other cases, they've had enough reserves just because they planned ahead. And so this first narrative of, of cryptocurrencies is, is upgrading our financial system to uh, take care of problems that cryptocurrencies are really good at solving. And one of those problems is like ownership and proof of ownership. And in some cases, uh, abstracting away ownership from the actual proof of ownership. And so what Hashflow essentially does is abstract that away. Um, in that you can use the centralized order book for speed of transactions and, and fast high-frequency trading, um, but we don't have to allow them to custody it. Um, and so that's kind of the, the first narrative that I think is really important to hash for. The, the other one is this idea of these systems are tools to incentivize people to do things. 
And that's, you know, it's the, the Bitcoin, the blockchain, not Bitcoin uh, type narrative are basically is described by people who don't understand that the incentive is what makes this powerful. Um, and the hash flow token, uh, the cash flow, hash flow, cash flow is the incentive to bring trust minimization to this protocol. And uh, this is part of a narrative uh, in cryptocurrencies that I think most people completely miss. Um, one is a narrative of, of money. Um, the other is this narrative of the de-evolution of the firm. Um, which I've spoken a lot about. In the devolved firm, um, you no longer need a Delaware C-Corp to provide certain types of internet services. For example, um, there is no Bitcoin Inc. per se that's paying the miners. The protocol does that. And so in some cases, as we learn to think creatively about how to incentivize people in acting good and disincentivizing from acting bad, uh, this narrative of paying basically an adversarial group of workers to deliver a trust-minimized uh, service to people on the internet. Um, I think it's a really powerful narrative that uh, Hashflow has gotten right, while other you know, somewhat similar protocols and, and options have just completely ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's something that's super exciting to me. Um, you know, zooming out a little bit more, I think you were talking about how you came to this idea. My background being born first in traditional finance and moving over to crypto is like I've kind of just over time become obsessed and wanted to learn about how all of this stuff works. And uh, as we recreated a lot of things in crypto, we were kind of recreating stuff that occurs in traditional financial markets. For example, um, in traditional financial markets, you have a layer of providers. At the very top of the layer, you have uh, the E-Trades of the world, the broker dealers of the world, where you sign up for an account to invest. Um, and below that, you likely have a carrying broker dealer or a bank or a trust company that that holds those assets and, and helps uh, in exchange cases uh, match orders. Um, and then there are a few other spaces below that. But then at the very bottom, um, what we have today is something that's called DTCC. And uh, DTCC was created uh, in the 70s to essentially digitize paper certificates, um, which sounds kind of similar to what we're doing in crypto. The problem they were trying to solve for at the time is basically at the end of every day um, or every two days, depending on what the settlement requirements were, all of this paper had to move around. And so carriers were going through the streets in New York or things were going in the mail to literally settle trades um, at the end of the day when the, when the markets would close. And a lot of the regulatory infrastructure and requirements of broker-dealers and anybody who held assets was to be able to mark your books to know that you were still solvent at the end of the day. And so DTC was created to both address essentially losing paper certificates, but also try to give a little more comfort to the system that you kind of know and have a mechanism to settle at the end of the day. And that was kind of an upgrade to the system because what happens and what and even what did actually happen again in 2008 and nine is overnight people were going bankrupt. People, I mean, exchanges, Bear Stearns and, and the like. Um, and DTCC adds some sort of comfort in that you don't, because the custody is at a lower layer, um, the settlement can occur so long as all the parties are on the same side. And so what Hashflow has essentially done is, is brought the idea of, of separation of custody and the actual trading to cryptocurrencies. So we don't need centralized exchanges to both have the order book and custody. And so basically Hashflow is to DTCC 
while the exchanges can act in a similar way to the traditional financial markets. The difference is here, DTCC is a nonprofit that actually custodies in the real world. Um, Hashflow is a protocol. It is no entity. Um, it is no single uh, user or source. It is an open source protocol that anyone can contribute to, that anyone can fight for its token and, and its rewards. And uh, I think that's super powerful. Yeah, I, I generally like these analogies because it helps people contextualize hash flow a little bit better. I think if you read the white paper, I mean, it was very well written, but it's this solution is just so novel to some extent, and it, do, it does elegantly tie together some uh, some other solutions and also problems in the industry. But for a newcomer, it, it can be it can be quite a bit. But you know, this DTCC decentralized kind of analogy, I think makes a lot of sense. Understanding the similarities between Plasma and Lightning and the inspiration and kind of the problems that these solutions create, really. I think it's also really important to understand before we get into the actual design of the uh, of the protocol. Let's talk about an overview, really, of the system, uh, Varun. Let's cover the different ecosystem components, um, how they interact with each other, and you know how they all just like get along without without butting heads. So, so I think before we get into that, I want to add a little bit more about the DTCC background that okay. Wilson just mentioned. So, in terms of the design of the system, I think. It'll be relevant to that anyway. So, so the whole idea of DTCC being the the system where you have exchanges interacting with the broker dealers and so on, and then you have the custodian, which is DTC, which which does the custody, and then you have clearance house, and then they all interact, and then there is a rebalance in that settlement at the mm-hmm. end of the day. So the idea was you go, you tra- you deposit your funds with a custodian, a third party custodian. And then, and then you essentially do trade, which is essentially a read-write operation on the database. And then at the end of the time, uh, at the trading period, you essentially go and net settle. So if what we can abstract from this model is that every operation at the end of the day, at the logical fundamental primitive level, happens to be a function of rebalance and net settlement. So every other operation can essentially be abstract, taken away. And then as long as you're achieving that truth in accounting, which is what DTCC was promising to do. It's like, okay, we are the ones who are going to ensure that your funds stay safe and then we're going to give you the truth in accounting and which is essentially what allowed the DTCC to come into existence. So now, interestingly, blockchain does that for free. So so it provides verification of the truth in accounting at no cost. So, so you're like, okay, let's use that model to allow or to perform rebalance and settlement on blockchain and then and then, and then move everything else off the chain so uh, you're essentially now having this centralized local order book where all operations happen the exchanges can still provide and compete for business by offering different services various markets whatever suits their needs and uh, while you have this open market custodian uh, which is the hash flow smart contract which is not controlled by anybody but then uh, you're essentially taking away that risk of, of theft from all the exchanges and at the same time creating a scalable system that incentivizes various players. Mm-hmm. So so speaking of which now, we have the hubs, which I, when I say hubs, I'm mainly referring to exchanges and OTC desks at the beginning. And perhaps in the future, there could be other applications being built. So we have exchanges and OTC desks. Take, so taking advantage yes. of that current market structure yeah. within of, crypto trading. Of, of, of setting up hubs and setting yep. up uh, order books and automating their business by clearing trades without having the capital cost or the mental cost of being responsible for user private keys. So so that's 
one category. And then you have the wallet providers who are the other often ignored uh, entity, which happens to be the bridge between the users and uh, the, the exchanges or OTC desks. Or And uh, what we are doing with Hashflow is essentially creating a game where all these three players can interact with each other. And exchanges, the application was obvious, like they will be hosting order books and then they'll be routing or matching orders. And with world providers, uh, so interestingly, going back to Lightning Design, where we're proposing using watchtowers as the ones who will stay online at any all the time and make sure or ensure the integrity of the system. So, but the problem, was, of course, was what's the incentive for anyone to be a watchtower? Why would anyone be that? So, so in this case, we're like, okay, so I think wallet providers are one of those people who have the users, who have the data, but they're still trying to monetize and find a good business model where they can actually make money. And we look at it, this could be a good way to bridge the gap because yeah. they happen to be just there and they're waiting to find new ways to monetize. Wallets are and, very eager to find and, uh, uh, revenue sources. Uh, and look at this could be, this could be it where we essentially allow them to act as the watchtowers to be, be the custodians of transactions rather than anyone's keys and also uh, act as the oracles and uh, query market prices from exchange order books and then periodically submit them to the smart contracts. And this is another design decision we can talk about later on. But then currently the idea of having wallet providers is uh, to act as price oracles and uh, also as watchtowers who, who, who ensure there is no unilateral closure of any channel between an exchange and a user an exchange on OTC desk. So that's that's the players. So, so you have liquidity providers or traders who are trading on exchanges and hubs. And then you have wallet providers who act as the bridge, the watchtowers to ensure the integrity of the system. And then all of these guys can access the cash flows or the network profits mm-hmm. by by, which which we can go further into. Yeah. Before we cover the flow of funds, mm-hmm. um, basically how you end up at cash flow, right? Let's go over the profile of each of these ecosystem components. What does an ideal hub look like to you? Are you uh, mo- more compatible with small, you know, garage band exchanges or uh, are you going after the Binances of the world? And and the same kind of question for the watchtowers. Is this the do-it-yourself wallet providers or are you going after bread wallet and these traders as well? Are retail traders or are you going after high-frequency traders? So, uh, good question. Uh, so, so I think in this case, we essentially, we can cover a bigger ground. So there is no, this person should do it. This person shouldn't do it. So we can have, uh, the current big exchanges integrate hash flow. So, so if Binance wanted to adopt hash flow, uh, I think, uh, they can essentially use hash flow APIs to integrate and then decentralize their custodian part of what they do. Same thing with wallets. So current wallets can actually integrate Hashler protocol into their system. And at the same time, new entrepreneurs wanting to start a business or a hub can also just go out doing that. So many of the ZeroX uh, relayers at the moment, if they wanted to integrate Hashflow, I think this presents a good opportunity for them to uh, monetize on their existing business. And same thing with hubs as well, because A, it's taking away, again, the mental and the capital costs associated with the key management and then it's also providing them with a new source of revenue in the form of cash flows and so on without without much of the protocol uh, strict protocol governance rules that are inherent in many other protocols so 
I think that's how it sees. So for exchanges, it's create, it's taking away the security risk and cost and also giving you a new opportunity to monetize. And then same applies to wallet providers as well. So they can make money and the input is actually much, much less than the output or the Mac or, or something that you can gain from the protocol. Yeah. Interesting. To, to kind of, to kind of ex, ex, you know, maybe to highlight a little bit of that, from my perspective, centralized exchanges can and will integrate with this that are already large. Um, I think there's a lot of incentives for them to do that. That being said, I think this will definitely shine for brand new exchanges and upstart exchanges because you've essentially removed the need to even manage custody, um, which is, is frankly kind of the harder part for a lot of these groups to set up. Um, and so... I think newer exchanges would be very attracted to this. Um, And then more importantly, um, uh, wallets, Um, you know, setting up watchtowers and being a wallet to allow your users to trade in app in a non-custodial way, um, I think fits the ethos of wallets the most um, because they generally are giving self-custody to the user. The user wants these type of things. Um, And also it just happens to be paying them along the way. Traditionally, wallets have had a hard time figuring out how to monetize. I think that will change in the near future. I think 2020, we're going to see a whole lot more starting to occur um, around wallets. Um, Personally, I think wallets is a horrible term. I think they're going to end up looking more like operating systems um, because you're essentially... The keys are the... uh, Your private keys are are tools to operate lots of things. Um, Sometimes these things are money. Sometimes these things are something else, um, but that's an aside. But as an operating systems of, of people's private keys, um, what you will find is um, uh, there's going to be more and more ways to monetize. Um, Hashflow is, is, in my opinion, probably one of the best ways to monetize in the primary use case of cryptocurrencies today, which is trading. Um, and so I think, that's, I, think that, I think wallets are a huge opportunity for them right now. And I think the last part, of course, is the most important one, actually, even more than exchanges and WPs, is the liquidity providers. So it essentially allows them to go and trade without, without giving up custody to exchanges and still be able to uh, have the same experience uh, that they typically would by using traditional finance exchange protocols. So essentially, you're able to automate your business and do cross-exchange arbitrage by interacting different hubs from one single platform. It's almost like Bloomberg's terminal for crypto where you're able to talk to different exchanges from one place hmm. and... Uh, being able to do that and then switch and trade between different exchanges without having to giving up custody of your keys to anyone. So yeah, it's it's kind of like the it is the tool for the new age prime broker. Um, you can interact with all of these different liquidity sources to find the best price uh, without the compromise um, of of custody and all of the speed and uh, and frankly compliance and other issues with that as volume and things like that increase. Every exchange has different different requirements and and they batch differently and and how you get your funds in and out varies wildly. Um, and that's frankly why so much arbitrage in this space exists. Um, and so removing some of those things will, in my opinion, um, lead to uh, tighter spreads in a better market structure, I think. I do like the prime broker analogy and Bloomberg terminal, if you will. It's worth mentioning that this project is, is pre-launched, but you guys have written all the code and it's undergoing audit at the moment. Do you guys have any sort of plan to have a front end for for traders to access the network in the future that would look and smell like a Bloomberg terminal? Absolutely. I think this is some of the most exciting parts <laughs> that people may not know yet, but I'll, I'll pitch that one over to Varun. There's some very cool stuff for on that front. Yes. So the answer, the short answer is yes. 
what does it look like? There's a, it's a little teaser uh, image that you see on the website, but then that's like. Mm, but that, that was built like six months ago or five months ago, yeah, yeah. and it's working. Uh, yeah. so, so. Imagine, I mean, there's this huge overlap in crypto of technical people and developers, and that fell into trading and you know built their own tools. And so, so imagine a, a portal that is uh, a command line like exchange, and, and terminal like, um, uh, but for like a in a weird way, like it's already prime broker like as well like you can get to all these other all these liquidity spots i think it's you know on, on that front that's something you know we haven't i don't think we've spoken a lot about publicly but the experience uh, as a trader um, or a liquidity provider an otc desk or whatnot i think is going to be very close to product market fit very early on and in a way that most people i think kind of just didn't pay attention to mm-hmm. yep so from the yeah to follow up on that so uh yeah if you're a hardcore trader or LP, then you essentially can use your fixed APIs to integrate with exchanges and then do the trading without giving up custody. But then also from a front-end product point of view, we do plan to publish a terminal that allows anyone to essentially do the, do the whole idea of cross-exchange arbitrage and trade on different exchanges from one platform and access various markets without having to create accounts at different exchanges and then do all sorts of stuff. So mm-hmm. it's essentially, it's almost like in a way you can think of Tagumi, but without giving up custody of your keys. To mm-hmm. so. And is the the front end sort of in development concurrently with all of the tools and APIs you'll need for these hubs to come on board with Hashflow? What, what's the order of operations here on the product roadmap? So, so, so at the moment, the contracts are under audits. They'll be, they'll be out soon for everyone to play around with. And then the, the, the terminal that I talked about. So the command line terminal would be out soon. And following that would be the front-end web application that you can actually use yep. to, to access all hubs on Hashflow. So, yeah, uh, I think Varun kind of stuck himself in a cave for a while, incredibly built a lot of this stuff, which is very un-crypto-like. Everyone starts with white paper, raises a bunch of money, builds a team. You know, a lot of this stuff in, in, in Varun's release strategy is really in conjunction with things that are already built. You know, that also was one of the things that attracted me to this. Um, so coming very soon, I think. Yes. Very cool. We're going to dive a little bit deeper into the economic design, security trade-offs, things like that. Before we do that, I'd like a flow of funds, if you will, right? So how do you get from user entering a trade, getting routed through maybe a hub, it gets matched, and then fees are taken, I, I suppose, somewhere along the line. And how does all that get into cash flows that I believe are entitled to a token? Ah, uh, good question. So let's take a step back one more time. So uh, I think we talked about various hubs uh, operate or multi-centric hubs operating independently, competing for business with each other. But then it's also, it doesn't have to be competition. It could be cooperation where hubs can also share liquidity and so on, like they would do in trade. But then before we touch base on that, so yeah, as, as, as a trader on LP, you're essentially going on the exchange on which you want to trade. And then you make a deposit in the smart contract and make a reference to the hub on which you want to do trading. And then once you've made that step, uh, step two is the hub gets notified that this user has made a deposit and that's linked to your account. And that allows exchanges to update that local database with that balance. And then once you've done that, now you can go and do read-write operations on your local database until the time when the user wants to exit or leave the exchange and go elsewhere or take the funds or unlink the funds uh, that were associated with that hub ID 
to a different hub ID or they just want to altogether exit the network and then do something else with their funds. So the idea is deposit in the contract, contract notifies the hub, hub updates its local database, and the user can now go and trade using traditional fixed protocols or uh, on, on hubs. Uh, centralized order book and uh, trade with, across different markets. So that's that, that's a general idea. So at that point, the idea is how does Hub make money? It's a same convention, like you can charge fee or commission per trade, like you traditionally would, or incentivize different LPs and do profit sharing and so on. So the way Hubs can make money is, is very similar to the way they traditionally would be charging commissions. So that's one area of revenue. And then the big one, of course, is the capturing of profits or the cash flow. And this is where things get interesting. So if you talk about uh, the lightning design or something like that, where we said, like, we need to have collateralized channels. So one of the big reasons was the security concern of how do we make sure the hub isn't honest and how do we ensure that they're not cheating anybody and they're routing the payments properly. So the way we did that is we forced them to collateralize each channel. So, so which added to the overhead capital cost of starting a hub which also disincentivized many people to start a hub in the first place. So in our case, we're saying we should not do that because of the incentive design uh, design flaw. So how do we allow hubs to do trading, move funds, and not be collateralizing or putting upfront capital to prove that they are they are honest? So so that that that's where it became interesting. So so the first decision was was to allow users to be able to. Uh, make deposits, but the hubs themselves forward IOUs. So they don't quite collateralize channels. So they're first issuing promises by updating user balances and then they net settle or rebalance later. But then in that case, what we did was we essentially bound user withdrawal limits or exits from the smart contract by setting the bound as a function of their total deposits. So if I make a deposit of 10 ETH, then I can withdraw up to 10 ETH or something that equals 10 ETH. It could be 50 DAI or something else, depending on the conversion rate. And this is where the wallet providers that we previously mentioned reporting prices to the contract comes into play to determine that conversion. But then once you've established that, now you have, okay, fine. Users, they make a deposit. So so their, their withdrawal limit is now bounded by their deposits. But what about the hub? If a hub is not making any deposits, then how do you allow hub to withdraw their commission that they, that they reported. So, so we need a mechanism or a way to determine that they should be able to withdraw their commission without having to make a deposit. So, so this is where we had this thing where hubs can contribute or, or contribute a portion of their net revenue into what we call the network profit pool. And this profit pool essentially builds up as many exchanges or many hubs join and they commit a portion of their profit or revenue to the profit pool. You're having this profit pool being built up. But then it's not just hubs. You can also have users or anybody else start contributing a fraction of ETH or any, a token into the profit pool. So, so essentially you're having people putting in money. It's almost a lottery ticket or uh, where you're putting in some money in the profit pool that builds up. And then periodically, you're essentially trying to capture a portion of that profits. And the way you do that is by using Hashflow tokens or HFTs, uh, which you mint each time you make a deposit. So each time a liquidity provider puts a deposit into an exchange and references an exchange and a wallet provider, all three players, they, they mint some HFTs, which the number is to be, to be determined. 
but then it's a function of uh, it's a function of ratios again on how much you're contributing with respect to the global reserves and we use those ratios to compute the hfts that are distributed or minted by the three players namely the lps exchanges and wallet providers and then these players can then later on go and stake the hfts and then we again compute ratios and see uh, the players and the ones who control the majority of the pool get access to the profit pool. So this is where it gets a little tricky. So you have two pools. You have the HFT pool and you have the profit pool. So profit pool is being built by putting commissions or users just contributing voluntarily to the profit pool. So you have, let's say, a pool of ETH. And then in order to access that pool, you're staking HFTs in the HFT pool. And these HFTs you're acquiring, obviously, by minting them. And then you're staking them, and then you compare your stake with respect to everybody else's stake, and then you use those ratios to get your claims uh, on the profit pool. So, so that's essentially how. Uh, but if Lawson wants There's to certainly yeah, a lot to, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I think we're going a little rabbit hole um, yes. there. Uh, imagine Nick Carter's proof of solvency concept, and that you have to prove you're solvent at all times. This is a concept he's been pushing for probably a year or so around exchanges that do have custody proving solvency. Um, a lot of what he was talking about earlier is to prove that solvency, but let's now strap an insurance pool on top of it. Uh, and the rabbit hole part, let's let people invest in that insurance pool. That's actually what he's describing there. Um, it's proof of solvency plus this investable-like investment-like uh, insurance pool available for these liquidity issues. Is that helpful? Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I think proof of solvency is another component that we can touch base on. It's essentially used to prove that the exchange is honest. So the idea is proof of solvency equals the liabilities plus reserves. But I think uh, let's come back to that. Let's let's close the loop on uh, yeah. Uh, uh, the prop, kind of a follow-up question yeah. um, on the insurance pool. What exactly are you insuring against? So so you're insuring against uh, potential loss, if any, and otherwise loss on trades. It could be uh, so so. This again goes back to DTCC model where the exchanges and then the participants in the DTCC model, they have this thing called participant fund where they contribute a portion that builds up and that's used to cover for any losses, which was also used in 2008 and so on to recover for people who lost money and so on. So so we are using similar analogy of synesis and using exchanges contributing a portion of their revenue to this profit pool. So it acts as, that's why we call it profit insurance. So uh, it's, acting as something where you can claim, you can have a claim on profits even before you have a loss. But if you did incur a loss at some point, then you have already covered, uh, incurred that or, yeah. or, or covered that using the T profits. Take the audience through this loss scenario a little bit more. What's the worst thing, worst scenario that can happen in the hash flow system that results in losing this entire insurance pool or, or those components being paid out to? Right. So, so worst case scenario, everyone starts colluding with each other. So every exchange comes together and colludes with wallet providers and makes them submit a fake price or or, or, a fault or falsifies the market prices and then just submits a fake withdrawal proof where they set themselves, they, they increase their withdrawal limit to an arbitrarily high number and then try to withdraw and steal the money or steal the liquidity. But then if they do that, then it also means anyone else can also do the same thing. So it creates a very chaotic scenario where maybe one person will profit a lot if they are able to successfully pull that off. But then there's so many time lock conditions. Like for each after each rebalance, you have a time lock. 
uh, that allows you to dispute and see if something wrong happened. And if yes, then an exchange can do a recovery mechanism to prevent that from happening. And also, it's almost like using a backup email to recover your compromised account. So exchanges could do that. And same thing with wallet providers. But then worst case scenario is everyone turns evil and decides to steal all the money they have. In which case, uh, it becomes a security issue. But it's also really, really tough to achieve because even if they start collude, they begin to collude, then you still have other traders and LPs being uh, notified instantly that something like that is taking place and which allows them to force withdraw their funds within the given time period if something like that were to happen. So the mechanism being if there's a notification going on that shows that a wallet provider has submitted false prices, uh, there's still a time lock condition before those prices become binding. And that window allows anyone to just force withdraw their funds before they are actually compromised. But if everyone misses the window and everything is, is gone bad, that's the worst case scenario you can imagine. Yeah, uh, just diving deeper into security and, and economic design here. Talk about the different attack vectors that people seem to uh, bring up with you and, and highlight. I'm, I'm in a Telegram group with different um, people in the Hashflow community, and they bring up issues around the Oracle problem and dynamic withdrawing, which you uh, briefly covered, uh, and double spend, uh, which I think you avoid with uh, proof of solvency. Talk about these various attack vectors. Which ones do people have the most concern over? So, so I think the big concern comes down to double spending and how do we prevent that. And uh, I also think that confusion stems from the idea of many people confusing it to a payment protocol. The key to remember here, it's, it's, it's a swap, it's a trade. So you, you cannot take if you did not put in anything. So, so if you did not deposit anything, then you cannot withdraw anything from the contract. So, so your withdrawals are always a function of your deposits. It could be in a different token or a different asset, but there has to be some deposits before the contract allows you to withdraw an equivalent amount. Mm-hmm. Wait, but what, what about in a scenario where you deposit Bitcoin mm-hmm. and the value of that Bitcoin against Ethereum diminishes quickly and very, uh, you know, very much, right? And the claims of withdrawals you can have are just vastly different. And uh, how can that be sort of gamed uh, if there's a sudden price action? So there's a price action. The assumption is if you made a deposit of BTC, but then you never traded, then you can simply go and withdraw all your BTC back. You don't have to. That the price variation would not impact your deposit. But if you did start trading, and when you begin trading, the exchange notifies the smart contract that this particular user is trading now. Right, so, so, so once once you start trading, that's when the price comes into play if you decide to withdraw. So at that point, if you decide to withdraw funds, maybe ETH or BTC, then you actually do the conversion to determine what your new withdrawal limit is based on current price. So, so that's the idea. So if you can just deposit and then don't trade at all, then your funds are yours. There's, there's nothing to lose. But then if you do start trading, then the assumption is you traded an asset for a different asset and then whatever the current price is, that that's what you get. So if you traded a one BTC for 50 ETH or maybe five ETH, and now you decide to withdraw, and once a price update happens, now your withdrawal limit is either one BTC or five ETH accordingly. So that's that's the whole mechanism. Mm-hmm. And the watchtowers, mm-hmm. uh, they're also the ecosystem components that provide price feeds. How do you think about the Oracle problem as it pertains to Hashflow? So... Currently, the, the, the two the cipher, cipher, prime cipher functions to 
determine uh, to create what uh, uh, price oracles has been punishment and violence. So, so the reason I use that words is because if if you see many proof of stake mechanisms, the idea is how do we punish someone if they cheat, and uh, they must be punished. Otherwise, we cannot really trust them. And what Hashler is saying is we don't have to do that. We could simply allow anyone to just go and report prices, but then only incentivize those who are actually being used by users and exchanges. So that removes the idea of me having upfront funds to stake and also the issue of what number is the right number? How do you determine who stakes and how much? And then that introduces new third-party enforcement or force network update of someone trying to determine what's what's the right number for everybody else so so uh we like okay let's and then that introduces governance which, which becomes even more complicated so so in order to avoid that completely uh what hashflow did was that anyone can go and be a data provider and they can report market prices and only get incentivized with hfts if a user or an exchange were actually using them to uh, allow for withdrawals and so on mm-hmm. so so if let's say Ledger is one of the wallets that becomes a hash for wallet provider and everyone is using them and it happens to be the bridge between an exchange and a user, then they would be minting HFTs, which they can further use to access cash flows that we talked about. But if let's say someone like Lawson decides to report data and uh, no one is using it, then he doesn't mint HFT, but then he doesn't lose anything either. So, so his reporting prices does not have an impact on the system unless people start using his service. So it's almost like you build a service and if you incentivize people to join the network and participate, then you get rewarded. But if you don't do anything, then uh, your actions do not have an impact on the network. The Oracle problem is, is in my opinion, not just a cryptocurrency problem, but an internet problem and probably even pre-internet the way I look at the Oracle problem, it, you know, it's just like history. Um, you need enough people to agree on what happened. And so I think over an extended period of time in crypto and on the internet, we're going to recognize that people in mass is how you get truth. Twitter, I think, is a very interesting platform that could bring truth to what's occurring. And so, you know, if you think about news on the internet and how that occurs today, it, it tends to start first on Twitter, um, and then it eventually makes its way elsewhere. And so um, the Oracle, all of these random people reporting, um, and then someone picking it up and trying to verify it. That is an internet problem just as much as it's a cryptocurrency problem. Google solved for the, in a weird way, the Oracle problem in, in by basically trying to index and kind of weight things in a similar way to how you weight the validity of a white paper um, or a paper generally, like how many sites does it have? That's how Google works. I think uh, those type of problems are moving from, you know, internet, you know, real world problems to internet problems to cryptocurrency problems. Um, You know, I think they kind of like go cross everywhere. And so what what that really means for hash flow, just like anything else on the internet, is you need more reporters. That's how you get truth. So uh, incentives ideally bring us more reporters. Yeah, great. Do you guys want to break for three minutes? Oh, sure. So before we take a break, I want to touch base one more time okay. uh, about the rabbit hole we spoke about, just in case it wasn't clear, uh, on, on the hash flow tokens and capturing the profit pool. So I think okay. a good analogy I was thinking about is like almost like buying lottery tickets and then using those tickets, more tickets you have, 
you're increasing your odds of uh, winning the raffle. In this case, you're not really buying Hashler tokens. In a way, you're just minting them by participating in the network. And then once you have these HFTs, you're essentially using them as a mechanism to capture the largest amount of pools. The person with the most Hashler tokens gets the biggest chunk of the profit pool. And then the game resets. And then people again start putting money in there and then try to compete to acquire more hash flow tokens and come back again, stake them in the pool and try to capture more profits. Yeah, and and the, the, the analogy here is, is Maker and its workers and the people who are fighting over the liquidation. These cryptocurrency networks are adversarial networks and they work because people are incentivized with uh, internet money to do something. Um, and so I think this lottery concept is good. Um, but I guess it's important to note that that's by design. <laughs> people will fight over money. Um, and uh, with enough people in the liquidity in that fight, you once again, in a similar way to the Oracle problem, um, you will get a truth. You will get a more, and by truth, I mean a more trust minimized system. Um, and so that, that's, that's by design, um, I guess is my point. Yep. And the beauty is you don't need the token to access or use Hashflow. In fact, you can use Hashflow without a token. You do not need that to do anything or any operation. It's an additional bonus or a reward that you can use to capture cash flows if you want to, or you can not have cash flows and just use the Hashflow network if the way it is. One more question that's very similar, kind of a meta question, if you will, before we move on to the next uh, topic of discussion, which will be bootstrapping liquidity. I noticed through the system, there's some design choices that are kept very standardized. And then there's some things that you've left a little bit of room for interpretation. And I believe it's probably to help the system scale. You know, you don't define exactly what requirements you need for a hub, but you do have strict standards around withdrawal limits and and, and other components. How did you, first of all, pick those standards, uh, especially around withdrawal limits? And, you know, how did you land across uh, those exact proportions? And why overall... You know, have you decided to standardize some things and leave some things with a little bit more wiggle room? What's your philosophy between yeah. standardization? And a good question. Yeah. So, so speaking of withdrawal limits, so, so I don't think I have a hard coded withdrawal limit on anything. In fact, hubs can set their own withdrawal limits by either contributing more to the profit pool or contributing less. So, if they contribute nothing, then they cannot withdraw anything. Their withdrawal limit is zero. Yeah, the way I look at those two things is the withdrawal limit is a balance sheet and it needs to add up. While the hub parameters around contributing incentives and profits, that's something that, in my opinion, is likely going to be set by the market. Um, the market is better at pricing that than we would be or Varun would be. Um, while withdrawal limits, in, in my opinion, is really just a balance sheet. It's very easy to kind of define that because it, that's what it essentially is. Yeah. So you essentially, yeah, as a hub, you can decide how much you want to give to the pool. So if you give 100%, then you can't withdraw anything. And if you give 0%, you can still cannot withdraw anything. So, so uh, most likely what's going to end up happening is hubs are going to determine that number based on market dynamics and then value their risk profile and then set that number accordingly. So maybe 5%, 10%, or even 2 or 3 depending on how uh, well the market is reacting to that. Same goes to other parameters like the rebalance times. Uh, it's, again, a dynamic number that hubs can determine on uh, how frequently they want to rebalance. They could do it daily, they could do it every four hours, five hours, depending on their security and, and how conservative they are in terms of uh, how often they want to rebalance and how many times people are requesting them to request. Because the whole idea is you only rebalance when you 
uh, want to when a user wants to withdraw their funds. Uh, otherwise, you don't need to rebalance. The way you achieve truth in accounting is using proof of solvency, which I think we can talk about in the next section on how we do that, because that's another interesting question. Now, I think many people have been asking the same question, how does it work? Like, uh, what is proof of solvency exactly? So I think that's something we can talk about in the, after the break. But uh, the factors that I was using hard-coded standards for are primarily the time limits or time locks for performing uh, reporting solvency reports and uh, also how often can a hub withdraw. So these are not hard-coded limits, but then there's a minimum requirement to prevent anyone from draining liquidity. So, so any factors that can impact the entire reserves being depleted are where I used some kind of minimum standards. And then for everything else, I made it a, a freedom of choice where hubs can adjust their risk parameters based on uh, what fits best for them. Very good. So I do want to cover bootstrapping liquidity and go to market. And, and in general, I have a hunch that the token has a lot to do with bootstrapping the ecosystem. How have you designed the token so that it kind of does its work for you when you actually try to do sales and business development with these different hubs? So here's where it gets interesting. So we talked about uh, the token design uh, or the token being the second order token that gives you access to cash flows. So that's the biggest incentive for anyone to uh, want to own Hashler tokens is that they're able to capture uh, the network profits. So, so in terms of bootstrapping the liquidity, uh, so, so once we start fundraising, we want to use that initial capital to create the initial markets for, for various assets or digital assets here, BTC, ETH, and so on. And once we bootstrap that, then the sharing liquidity part, I think this goes back to the traditional market structure and so on where hubs can essentially do a uh, read-write on each of the state databases and then swap liquidity with each other and then, then adjust or net settle on each other's balance tables. So, so we're using the same philosophy here, where exchanges can essentially, if you're a small exchange who has some liquidity, but you also have diffs that you want to cover, then you can go and trade on other exchanges' order books and then eventually just net settle with that exchange and then cover for your users here. So, so small exchanges can actually go and trade on larger exchanges and then essentially bootstrap their liquidity. But then in particular for Hashflow itself, we plan to bootstrap the initial liquidity from the capital we raise in, in the upcoming months. Okay. I have a good understanding of uh, why a smaller exchange would want to join the Hashflow network. I think uh, bootstrapping their own liquidity is pretty paramount. What about a large exchange like a Coinbase or a Binance? What's in it, what's in it for them to join the network? So, so for them, they don't have the same incentive as a large exchange. I'm just trying to maximize my liquidity. It doesn't matter who's trading on my order book. So as long as there's more liquidity and there's more counter offers or counter orders, I'm just going to fill them. So, so it could be coming from a trader, an LP or a small exchange. But regardless, um, all I'm doing is I'm just matching the orders. Mm -hmm. And if they happen to be from one of the exchanges, then I just do a net settlement with them. But if it's just regular traders, then I just disregard that. So, so as, a, as a large exchange, the incentive is I'm just getting even more liquidity than I already do. Because it's a two-way function here. So when we say liquidity sharing, it's not just small exchanges giving their liquidity to exchange, large exchanges. 
uh, it's, it's not just small exchanges taking away the liquidity from large exchanges, they're also providing their liquidity to them. So that's almost like a mutual exchange of liquidity rather than one person giving it and the other person just taking it. Yeah, everyone benefits from the prime broker. Everyone benefits from liquidity, having less friction, having easy, easier move between those things. Um, so, so all parties in theory are, are seeking more liquidity for truer prices and obviously more trades. Okay. What's the process for a new exchange to join the network? Kind of from the development team at the exchange and operationally, uh, what's going on when an exchange wants to sign up for, for Hashflow? Do they have to integrate some sort of API? Things like that. Walk me through that. So one of the biggest inspirations for me has been uh, Stripe, the way it did things in terms of API design and documentation and how they made integration of everything super, super easy. So I think that's what I've been using as inspiration to design the APIs in general. So, so the idea being, if anyone wants to integrate Hashflow, they're, they're simply using the API endpoints to register themselves as a hub on the smart contract and then be able to uh, allow users to trade, uh, make, make deposits and so on. So the idea is you're using Hashflow APIs that we plan to publish in the upcoming weeks to be able to start playing and integrating and starting the hub. So you could actually just start a hub or you can just integrate with your existing infrastructure. So the idea being, we'll be publishing Hashflow APIs here too for anyone to be able to do that. And uh, how are the conversations going with uh, current exchanges and OTC desks? What are some of the their top concerns? So the main concern was uh, obviously the, the integration cost and how much dev time would be required and how this works. And then uh, there was also pretty good feedback in terms of what kind of business opportunities are there for them and how uh, their current operational model is set up. So I think the biggest problem is the change. So no one wants to, no one likes change. Like if you have to change your existing system to something else completely different, it's a big overhead cost. So the idea is the big concern is how much, how much do I have to change for my existing behavior or pattern? And uh, for how we are saying is that change, we want to minimize that to the least possible steps to move away from what you already do to something completely different. I think this also goes back to how the current protocols work, where if you invent the wheel again, then you're essentially asking everyone to just change the way they traditionally do things. And no one likes to change things. So the idea is we're like, okay, don't change anything the way you do it, except just integrate this and you're able to uh, actually add this additional layer of security without changing your traditional behavior on how you run the business. Yeah, I, I think what we're seeing both in the cryptocurrency space and even in the quote security token space or the broker dealer space in, in that are touching crypto um, is over a extended period of time in the crypto exchange space because of hacks, because of exchange good and bad behavior, the best exchanges are starting to try to be a little more open with the BitMEX insurance funds where profits are going towards it. And so you're kind of seeing this market-driven approach. I mean, on the other side, especially with broker-dealers, if you're following that side of the space, um, there's a whole slew of groups trying to get approval for uh, alternative trading systems, ATSs, um, to trade, quote, security tokens in the space. And uh, what the regulators essentially said is, you know, they haven't given any clarity because they don't know how to feel to feel safe to let these ATSs uh, hold and custody these things. And what they've what they've essentially said is, we actually prefer the peer to peer ones. And so it's a in a weird way, it's the regulator being kind of cyberpunk 
Um, they're saying we don't want the ATSs, at least today, to have custody and control of these things. And so um, that's almost this regulatory pressure, at least in that portion of the business, to say like, hey, uh, we're probably more comfortable with users just controlling their stuff. Um, and so both social and market pressure, in addition to regulatory pressure, I think it, it coming from different directions will, over an extended period of time, force or, or push the, net, the, the market towards these type of things. On Hashflow, you can set up an exchange really quick. When that happens, in the same way that banking APIs at Synapse allow you to set up to fintech app really quick, um, you're probably going to get an explosion of potentially new market entrants um, that have different growth hacks and different um, different ways to attract users. Personally, I believe that, that Hashflow will be part of this version 3 of um, exchanges in crypto. Uh, we started with version one, uh, centralized exchanges or sex, CEX, as, as Varun calls them. And then version two, we were like, Hey, you know, this, you know, we have smart contracts. We can do these, uh, we can use DEXs and, and kind of go about it that way. Um, obviously those came with uh, less custodial risk. Um, but they also had some negative, uh, externalities like you could front run those trades. It was all on chain. It was slow. Uh, Hashflow is really, in my opinion, uh, the next iteration, the version three of exchanges, or at least it will enable that. And so you're going to get decentralized prime brokers. You're going to get brand new upstart exchanges in jurisdictions that maybe haven't been here before um, or with a different approach to attract users. A lot of times we like to think about like these exchanges competing for users in the space. And yes, that's true. But when you think about the number of users outside of the space, I personally think the game is still wide open for, for a winner. Um, and so I think Cashflow will, will likely um, attract a lot of upstart exchanges. And I, I think that's probably the largest opportunity for Hashflow. What do you think is the strategic uh, impact of many exchanges uh, coming to market? Exchanges are, I guess, when I think of the benefits of exchanges, it's almost like a hacky on-ramp to a lot of different uh, emerging markets and, and such. Like uh, when we're at Wire, obviously... Uh, we want to provide on-ramps to different, uh, you know, the long tail of the market, if you will. But uh, figuring out the regulatory infrastructure, just having boots on the ground, things like that prevent us from going to market in, in certain regions. But at the same time, there are these local exchanges popping up that are figuring out regulations uh, in that in that certain market and onboarding customers into this kind of experience. I imagine that these same exchanges can be where when you get more interesting financial products in crypto where they can be listed, right? And you already have an on-ramp into into that ecosystem. Do you kind of think about that uh, when you think about these new exchanges that can be created uh, with Hashflow? What are the different kind of strategic impacts with uh, anybody being able to create an exchange? Yeah, I mean, so from a regulatory standpoint, so obviously I'm an attorney and have a lot of background in that and understand the banking laws and the securities laws, um, you know, uh, the first question every regulator asks is, show me the flow of funds. If you're not in the flow of funds, things get really simple. Um, Hashflow will enable that because you're not custodying users' funds. And I think um, if you look at the way a lot of raws are written in the, you know, uh, in my in my FDS, the bit license, uh, money transmission laws in the U.S., I think you'll start to see that this type of structure could enable some things that could be uh, otherwise, you know, maybe regulated in one way and not another. Um, they still may be regulated as in some fashion as an order matcher, um, but not as a custodian. And what that means, when you're regulated as custodian, there's a capital requirement in the same way uh, we're talking about, what we'll probably talk about in a second, you know, 
proof of solvency and things like that. If you can get rid of some of those things, um, the ability to start um, a new exchange um, is a lower cost of entry from a regulatory stance, lower cost of entry from a cash capital efficiency stance and having to put aside funds for capital reserves. And frankly, all of the operational costs to make sure you're always at the right reserve and checking in with regulators, et cetera, et cetera, can be a lot lower. Um, and so I think that's pretty powerful myself. Very interesting. Uh, let's talk about your competitive landscape. Who do you consider your competitors? How do you how do you compare against them? So, so I wouldn't say there is a thing of uh, competition. It's almost a competition where anyone can essentially join the network. So, so the idea is, yes, you have something that's already working and you're making money. And by integrating this, you can just make more money. So there's no reason to compete because there's a lot of system designs and uh, new protocol designs that are emerging where people are innovating constantly. And I think uh, in this case, the, the, I think the biggest comparison that's going to occur, if anything, would be with 0x on, on how is this different from 0x or traditional exchanges on is this another DEX or uh, what is it doing differently? So I think the idea here is, I think the way we differ here is A, the token design. We don't require a token to access the network, although I think 0x has been working on something similar to remove the token requirement. And B, the incentives are like you earn cash flows simply for participating in the network and being active. But then more importantly, all transactions, they are being done on centralized order books. And then they use very much the traditional systems that are being used in finance, using smart contracts purely for rebalance and that settlement. You're not batching transactions or orders or every order in the smart contract, but rather you're only batching uh, the withdrawal proofs if someone wants to withdraw. So, so that's, that's where the technical differences come into play. But I would see CRX almost like a combination of you, you, you're posting orders off chain, but then all orders get executed on chain. In Hashflow, everything happens off chain besides the custodianship and then uh, the rebalance and net settlement operation. And, and to kind of expand on that, the competitors or comparisons, the, the two most common ones I get are R1 and TBTC. Um, with regards to Arwen, Arwen is a protocol in a very similar way to remove custody um, from exchanges. Um, and, and where the differences in Arwen is, is two very simple differences. Um, there's no cash flow incentive in Arwen. So all of the actors aren't really paid to act. And the second thing is uh, they require, just like Lightning, to lock capital. And so those are the big key differences. I think those are incredibly great strategic design decisions by Varun um, that he got right. And then the other one with regards to TBTC, TBTC and, and Hashflow Network um, use similar tools, but they're not even any remotely competitive. Yeah. TBTC is to uh, MakerDAO as to ETH. Basically, you can now go levered long Bitcoin, and you can also in the process put actual Bitcoin on Ethereum, unlike Wrap BTC, where you have to trust BitGo. Um, it's a financial product. The most exciting narratives for me this year that I've been paying the most attention to is ETH to BTC. Everything that's occurring in the space right now is, I think, those are the most important blockchains. That's where the most transaction activity is. Um, that's where the most uh, miners reward is. And that's where the most users and devs are. And as a result, those chains need financial products and they need interoperability and they need scaling. Um, and so what TBTC is doing is more both a financial product and bringing BTC to ETH and vice versa in a weird way. While uh, Hashflow is not really a financial 
product in the same way that TBTC is. Um, it, it has value because of the cash flows, um, but it's more about the same scaling, the same interoperability, the same ethos of TBTC, trust nobody with your coins. Those are all the same ethos and very, in my opinion, complementary projects. Yep. So in a way, Hashflow essentially allows anyone to trade TBTC at scale. Yep. So, so TBTC, you can obtain that without trusting anybody. 100%. And then you can trade TBTC on Hashflow at scale without, again, giving your keys to the operator. So the users are lazy and they prefer to give away custody to operators. In fact, that's what they've been doing. So in a way, it's an observed behavior that users do tend to give away custody. And why would this be an incentive? So I think the idea here is custodianship is, again, an optionality. A user can have their own custodian if they want to. Uh, but we are not forcing the operators to be the custodians. That's That's the takeaway here. And I don't know, like, so I guess part of my annoyances with a lot of the space is like, we've just created all these little rubies that you're supposed to stick in your pocket and they're going to be valuable in some future time just because they're valuable. I disagree with that assumption. These are uh, new tools for economic activity. And if they are tools for economic activity, then you're going to need to interact with them for various reasons at various times. What that means to me is trading is a friction to interaction, you know, in an internet interaction way, and less so of I'm a trader. To me, that the trading aspect of this is not is less interesting than these are economic tools for new activity on the internet that's never been possible before. Um, and if you look about it that way, it's important to have better tools for this interaction and exchange for all these other reasons than I'm a trader. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Just a couple final uh, questions from me. Uh, you had an interesting thought, Varun, on how cryptographic proofs are to crypto what paper currency is to commodity money. Uh, I thought this was uh, a pretty interesting thought. Uh, what, are, what are you getting at here? Talk a little bit more about this and what's your vision of the world that depends on a second order crypto-like thing? Absolutely. So I think before touch base, I wanted to close the loop on the Arvin discussion previously. Sure where it was the fun difference between Arvin. So I think A, Lawson Point cash flows. And the second one was uh, in Arvin, every exchange, if you're an exchange operator, you're required to also put in capital in the channels for the users to trade. So the amount the user can trade is limited by how much the user is putting in the exchange, in the channel and how much exchange itself is also putting in the channel. So as a result, it goes back to the same problem of like capital. And capital. Cool. So, uh, cryptographic proofs and, and crypto. That's it. How are you That's thinking it. About I, I think this is one of my favorite topics of uh, going deep in the rabbit hole of how uh, the evolution of money itself. And then that's, I think that's where I had these insights of how we can achieve scaling. And I think it's also something that's been talked about by Nick Carter. And then I think Jimmy Song mentioned something along similar lines. And then example of also, uh, I think the only if you go back to the origin, we had like the barter system. And uh, people were trading goods here and there. And then you can imagine the whole system as a giant mesh network uh, of its sort where various things have been, are being traded. And eventually, you start seeing patterns on certain commodities which are being traded more than the others. And as a result, you moved from mesh network to a multi-centric hub-and-spoke model where the hub represents the commodity being traded more. So, so maybe some regions were trading gold, some were trading rice, gems, and so on. But in certain commodities, for various reasons, 
uh, could be philosophical, religious, could be uh, electromagnetic properties of gold as a metal. So, so some commodities achieved uh, more prominence uh, versus others, and now you have multicentric Hausberg model. But then the problem you're running into is the scaling issue. So yes, you can have various commodities in various geospatial regions, but then how do you achieve an international global trade network where you can move these commodities, like let's say gold, across different regions? And uh, the physical constraints of these commodities, of course, presented the scaling problem that we talked about. So, so in order to solve that, we invented the technology of currency. So, so now we're saying let's use physical commodity money and save it somewhere safe, maybe with some institution, and then let's use the currency, the paper, as a way to as a letter of credit, and then do a rebalance in that settlement later. So. Historically, it's like this comes from ancient Vedic period all the way. So that the idea of letters of credit, it's always been there. So, so you have the commodity money being stored somewhere and then you're trading letters of credit uh, as a way to prove the ownership of that commodity. And then you eventually rebalance on that settlement at various hubs uh, that are located around the world. So essentially, we are like, okay, so if that's the fundamental, then you have money and you have currency, then... I was seeing the same concept being applied here where we have Bitcoin network, you can visualize a joint mesh network. And now you're slowly starting to see hub and spoke model where you can see various exchanges as those hubs that allow you to uh, move between different commodities, except we are running into scaling problem because of the, the layer one constraints here, uh, which is more like a digital problem versus the physical constraints. But the good thing is uh, the cryptography makes it a lot easier to... Uh, solve that problem. So, so you're essentially using cryptographic proof uh, or SPV proof that provides the ownership of that BTC that you can swap at layer two without running into the scaling issue. So that's why I came with the analogy of cryptographic proofs are to crypto what currency was to money. So, so you don't need, uh, when you say you need to back a currency with another currency, so that's why we're saying we don't really need to do that in crypto because it's already digital. The reason you had to back gold with paper currency is because gold was the money. Currency was essentially a way to scale, uh, make it current, like make it flow. So so similarly, in, in but in crypto, if the asset is already native digital, then you don't need to back it with something else. You can simply just trade it. So so it is already money. So uh, in this place, if you really want to scale that, and uh, because of layer one constraints, then we're simply saying cryptographic proof that can provide ownership, just like letters of credit said, we can, we can simply just use that to do trading. Very interesting concept. Cool, guys. Uh, last question is very easy. Uh, where can people get in touch with you, read more about the work that Hashflow is doing? Fantastic. I'm uh, LWSN Baker, B-A-K-E-R, on Twitter. Um, or you can reach out to me. I just reach out to me on Twitter and I can talk there. Yeah. And uh, I'm Gandalf the Brown on Twitter. And it's a zero, not, a, not an O. So Gandalf the BR0WN. That's my Twitter handle. And uh, you can also find out more about Hashflow on hashflow.network or join the Telegram channel, which is also Hashflow uh, Network. Twitter is also Hashflow Network. So, so, so you can join any of those. And then. Uh, you find more info. So there's a pretty interesting discussion going on on our Telegram channel. So I'd highly encourage you to partake and join and feel free to send me any questions you have on Telegram. That's the easiest way to reach out. And also, I think Twitter works. Uh, 
fairly active on responding to DMs. So looking forward. Yep. And, yep. If, and if you want to go full rabbit hole, Varun has written a whole lot of like lead up pieces to before he released the white paper and the website over the philosophy and design decisions that uh, are close to Iliad in length, but really, really good stuff. So uh, get some coffee and like hang out on the weekend and just start biting away at them. They're really, it's a lot of good stuff there. Yes. I think they're all medium. So they're again, and the title Gandalf the Brown says, if you go to medium, you'll discover them. They're called as economic life, zero sum and unplugging from the fiat matrix. And you'll also find the links on the, on the website as well. So, so uh, yeah, you, you get quite philosophical in those. Um, I, I really enjoyed reading them and we'll post them in the show notes for sure. Well, uh, thanks guys. This has been really enlightening. I, I guess I'll just uh, close off the show then. Thanks so much. If you have any questions or comments, reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or the Wire blog, whatever works for you. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks again for listening.